Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a terminal part of the SpecGram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is the unmentionable Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left, everyone's favorite gentleman's gentleman, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us from a life-size chessboard in the mountain fortress of Dr. Dunkelstein Bergenegger, Bill Sproul. Hey! And also joining us again on the program is resident linguoenterologist Madalena Cruz-Ferreira. Welcome. Thank you very much. That's me. Yes. Lovely to be here. <laughs> so, of course, I think one of the places that people may know you the best from, at least with regards to SpecGram, are your series of actual and true test or homework answers given by undergraduates on uh, linguistics exams or homeworks, right? Tell us how you got started with this. I started collecting them for my own pleasure, you know. <laughs> <laughs> And then, because I thought they were just too good to, you know, go to waste, right? So suddenly I was stuck with pages upon pages upon pages of handwritten stuff. So I copied them myself by hand mm -hmm. from the student papers, right? And then I thought, one day I'm going to publish this as a book. <laughs> <laughs> but then um, Spickram happened in my life and I thought, where else can I publish this? <laughs> What could be best than Spickram? <laughs> wow. And of course, now that it's been published in Spickram, you will never, ever, ever be able to publish this in a book. We've taken all the rights. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't, I don't think I want to either. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. a question about those student ports. Do you have to get human subjects research permission for this kind of research? I mean, you're using human subjects for research that could be dangerous. I had to go through the ethical committees and all sorts of stuff. And yes, I did that. But I was cleared. I didn't take any actual body samples from the students, so that was okay. <laughs> I think the person most in danger is Madalena, because uh, <laughs> reading some of those makes you want to throw yourself out a window. I had large classes on top of that, right? So I was correcting oh, yeah. like 400, 450 oh, student God. pages. And <laughs> after Well, when you read the same nonsense over and over again in different forms, right? Mm -hmm. uh, then you start wondering, did I actually teach them this? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Or even worse, maybe the facts are wrong. Maybe you had the facts wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe an allophone is a speech sound pronounced by an alligator. <laughs> For example. <laughs> or a phony by any other name or something like that. Right? Yeah. You do get confused after all. That's another reason for me wanting to publish this thing in Speculative Woman. Mm -hmm. And of course, we thank you for it. Okay, so it's time for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. As usual, I have three language-related items, and two of them are true and one is false. And you guys have to figure out what's what, and then we'll discuss it uh, after you, as many of you as possible get them wrong. Here we go. Mm -hmm. Our theme this week is numbers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> We practiced that. Just the, uh -huh. just the response I was hoping for from a bunch of linguists. All right. Item number one. In Tuscarora, the number 11 is considered so unlucky that no one will say it. Hmm. Any euphemism used quickly also becomes taboo. And in the 1970s, uh, Mary Methuen documented more than 15 terms for 11 that had been used and discarded in the previous 20 years. Hmm. Item number two. Swedish King Charles XII ordered philosopher Emanuel Swedenborg to devise a base 64 number system for Swedish. Swedenborg did so, but Charles got shot before it was implemented. Item number three. Tocharian A and B are the only known languages to have not only a dual number, but also an amble number for natural pairs of things like eyes, ears, shoes, headphones, and chopsticks. Hmm. All right, who wants to go first? Somebody with some history background. Bill. 
Oh, let's see. Number one sounds strangest because I can imagine somebody thinking 11 is unlucky, but it does seem kind of extreme. Number two sounds suspiciously plausible until you get to that part where there's like a Swedish philosopher named Swedenborg, which seems that's kind of pat, you know. <laughs> and as far as devising a base 64 number system, we'll say it's a number system. It's base 64. Math does the rest. Tokarian A and B, well, let's see, dual number, Amble. That one's making me nervous. I'm not sure why. I would expect if you're going to go past a dual, you would go to something like three or four, and it would be a Pockle, not an Amble. So I think number one, that's making me nervous. So I'll say it's true. Number two sounds implausible, but this is a culture that develops sewage streaming. So base 64 number systems, sure. Number three, I'm going to say that's false. Okay. Who wants to go next? Well, I disagree with Bill. That's worked out so well for you in the past. It's it's always been a very successful (laughs) strategy, so I think I'll just stick with it. (laughs) So I'll say both one and two are wrong. No, uh, (laughs) uh, no, the ample number is something that languages ought to have, and so I'm pleased to find that there is one, and uh, so we're going to have to say that that one is true. You ought to have a a number for things that are natural pairs, you know, years. And and also there should be something for things that occur uh, as collocational pairs like black and white or cat and dog or all those sorts of things, you know, that just naturally occur together. Anyway, I'm going to say that one is true. The Swedish king and the base 64 number system, why not? This is the sort of thing that... Trey would be delighted to find. Uh, <laughs> that could mean he would make it up, but I'm going to say that he's delighted to have discovered this one and that it really it's really true that someone had a nefarious plan like this. And that leaves the Tuscarora number 11, and this one is clearly not true because Marianne Methune would not have been able to find 15 terms for 11 that had been used and utterly discarded in the previous 20 years because with the strength of the taboo, the way it's reported here, no one would be willing to tell her what they were. So I think this one can't be right. Okay. David? I am going to give the same answer as Keith, but for a slightly different reason. Yeah. No, that's unlikely. Yeah, sorry, Keith. If I go down, I'm taking you down with me. (laughs) First of all, I think that for number two, this guy having a last name like Swedenborg is so obviously just stupid for being a Swedish linguist or scientist or whatever he is that Trey wouldn't have come up with it because it would have just been too obvious to tell. So that leads me to believe it's obviously true, uh, and so that two is a true one. As for number three, while I can't think of a language offhand that has a special number just for things that come in pairs, I know of at least one language that's sensitive to things that come naturally in pairs, and that is Arabic. In Arabic, body parts are, gender-wise, are masculine if they come naturally in singles, and they are feminine if they come naturally in pairs. And I will leave you to conjecture as to why. Uh, So anyway, (laughs) number three is going to be true, number two is going to be true, and the one about 11 just has false written all over it. Okay, Madalena? All right, I think I'll agree with the majority, actually. 
So I'll start with number two. I do know that there was an Emanuel Swedenborg in Sweden, right? A philosopher. I didn't know it was Charles the Twelfth, but I do know that he existed. My problem is whether he actually claimed this or not, which I think it's quite likely that he probably did, because uh, King Charles the Twelfth was a sort of a rogue king, interested in all sorts of funny things. So I think this one is probably true. Number three, Amber number, I don't see why that wouldn't be possible. David just gave an example, Arabic. My only problem here is that I wouldn't know about Tukarian A and B, whether they are the only known languages to have a dual number. I wouldn't know about that, but to me it sounds likely, so I'm going to say this one is true as well. Number one, I think it's very strange that how can you go around, gather evidence about words, as one of you said, I can't remember who it was now, how can you go around gathering evidence about names for numbers that you can't say. If you can't say them, then there is no evidence for them. So I think this one would be the false one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, number one, all you got to do is find some rebellious teenager who wants to swear like crazy to just say all the bad words for 11. But unfortunately, that's not what happens. Teenager's not old enough to give you the previous 20 years. (laughs) Next theory. (laughs) What you could also do is look over word lists. Every Uh, time somebody did field work with Tuscarora, if they got to 11, they gave you a different expression. And when you really looked at Tuscarora, it was something like the one before 12 or that one that comes after 10 or something like that. You could say, well, I'm I'm dealing with euphemisms here. Mm. Okay. Unfortunately, Bill, you didn't have a chance to give that argument and convince everyone <laughs> because number one is actually false. I made that up. Yes! It yes. 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 yes! Base 64 is such a terrible idea. You know, right after he hits 12, he'll probably start running into some really silly sounding words. <laughs> yeah, you'd have to have 63 basic numbers yep. and zero. And that would just be one for each vowel. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, so for base 64, the last number is 63, isn't it? So whatever is equal to 63, and then the next thing is 10. Yeah. 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 Be challenging, but if you have a lot of time on your hands, if you're a Northern European farmer, you know you got a long winter with nothing to do. So, <laughs> but see, the problem is not the base sixty-four number system; it's the words for the numbers. Once you get the idea of what a base is for a number system, sixty-four is no harder than any other ones. Well, it's the base negative actually, one system that's a headache. Oh, wow. You know, base 64 <laughs> would be easier because it would be so rare that you would ever get to 10, right? Almost everything you ever ran into would just be a, a basic number. Yeah. Mm, base infinity. <laughs> you know, it's hard enough to count above 80 in French. People learning Swedish would just be like, forget it. <laughs> you need new number systems, too. I mean, numerals, right? I mean, actual letters or symbols for numbers. Yeah, I could borrow them yeah. from the neighbors here. No problem. Do you know about the Danish counting system? No. Oh, heard God. About? Yeah, I've heard about no. it. Yeah, it's very, very difficult. <laughs> I mean, it's a base 20, again, like the French one which you mentioned. Instead of counting, like in French, that they count uh, 70 plus 10, right? Mm-hmm. It's the other way around. They count 80 in half. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. So half 80 is 70, and half 100 is 90. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> very, very confusing. And then they use the same word order that they use in German. Mm-hmm. So, so they say 1 and 20 and 2 and 30 and so on. Fascinating language. 
Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, hmm, so let's see. Let's see. So 99 would then be nine and a half hundred. That's right. Yeah. That's not quite as bad as 420s, 10 and 9. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. No. <laughs> this is, so 100 would be five times 20, right? Right. So, what they say for 99 is nine and then half five. Oh, okay. Yep. Mm. Half five. Mm. Half five. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's what they say. Does, does that continue past 100? I mean, is, is 120? No, no. Then 100 is 100, right? Huh. Yeah. So it's another one of those mixed systems like French. That... Yeah, exactly. And this only starts from 50. Right. <laughs> so it's half three, right? Yeah. 50 is three. And then from 500 to 700, you have to count by ones. We'll see what you obviously need is a language that has at least three noun classes, you know, masculine, feminine, neuter, whatever you want to call them. And every noun class has a different number system. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm surprised Russian has not already done that. <laughs> oh, that would be horrifying. It's a really good idea. <laughs> I think you just worked out the number system for David's next conlang. Yeah. Uh, no, that's brilliant. I don't know why that, I don't know. I don't think any of us have ever come up with that. I think I'm going to share that around. It's a, it's a brilliantly horrible idea. If you want to make it extra horrible, mm-hmm. make the bases uh, relatively prime so they have no common factors. Oh, God, yeah. For number two, I would point out that Tokarian A and B did not use this marking for headphones. I wondered about the headphones example, too, but I figured that distractor. You guys don't have two sets of headphones on your head? Well, the fact is Tokarian wouldn't have, they wouldn't have known about headphones since the language is extinct. Uh, They use earbuds. I don't find it, yeah, well, I guess. I just don't find that very compelling because I think that as long as you have two rocks and at least a bit of length of string, you can have headphones. And wouldn't they want to look as cool as we did in the 1980s? <laughs> what, well, what, did they have a special term for boom boxes, too? <laughs> you guys are getting the scope of the statement wrong. It's a list of things that are natural pairs, not things that Tokarian actually used the amble for. Mm-hmm. We understood that. Those yeah. of us who were correct here. Yeah, I think that, I think that was most of us, except for uh, Bill. Yeah, so let's talk about who's been correct the most often then. Yeah, it was, we kind of skipped that yeah, last the time. Standings. I think I'm rising in the standings. I'm probably up to last place by now. <laughs> <laughs> the good news is, Keith, you are in fact tied uh, with David for last place. With uh, <laughs> 9 out of 20. I had a 20, yikes. And uh, Bill has 12 out of 20. And Madalena has brought our guests up to 5 out of 12. Oh, dear. You did fine. You brought the average up, so. Okay. Oh, okay. Did I? Oh, okay. <laughs> it's good to know. <laughs> yeah, the problem it. is that Trey has started to figure out how to proactively interfere. I have. Because so, for, for a while, like, the one that sounds the craziest is not going to be false. And this time it was. <laughs> I haven't been doing that, but I did start thinking about that today. So clearly what I need to do is I need to have someone who has the same name as a famous celebrity. <laughs> and then their last name is, this, is somehow related to the country that they're supposedly from. And uh, I have to go back and listen to old episodes and figure out how to construct the <laughs> maximally hokey sounding clue. Well, so the thing is, I'm concerned that this is no longer a test about uh, knowledge or intuition about language. It's purely a test about knowledge and intuition about Trey. <laughs> well, no, it's knowledge and intuition about speaker intentions, which turns out to be the same thing as language. <laughs> oh, 
goodness, you can make it into pragmatics. That's great. Yeah, which is what semantics is. <laughs> you know, you guys drove it in this direction by accusing me of trying to be tricky. And if I'm going to have to deal with the stigma, I might as well reap the benefits. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us, Madalena. It was lovely to have you. Welcome. Enjoyed myself. This is great. <laughs> thank you for confirming uh, my opinion in this one and uh, for witnessing. Uh, I'll go ahead and say it for witnessing my brilliance. <laughs> First time, yes. Yeah. And don't forget about that co-authored paper, right? All right. No, no, no. Don't worry. I am on that. <laughs> well, anyway, thank you so much. Next up, we have some language news, but first, a word from our sponsor. Do all your conversations begin with references to journal papers? Is your social life decided by conference committees? Do you get watching ads for exercise equipment as seeing someone? Then we have the service for you. With an algorithm created by qualified conlangers and a few drunk PhD students in computational linguistics, LinguaDate is guaranteed to match you with your ideal linguistics partner. Just listen to these testimonials. I was originally skeptical when LinguaDate matched me with Robin, who was a dyed-in-the-wool believer in lexical functional grammar. <laughs> While I'm a hardcore role in reference grammarian, <laughs> I thought for sure LinguaDate algorithm must have been <laughs> cooked up by some incompetent coupling undergrads. <laughs> but Robin and I hit it off right away. <laughs> we both like reading long dissertations on the beach, curling up in front of the fireplace with a good descriptive grammar, <laughs> and watching the sunset and or the onset of voicing. <laughs> and of course, we are united in our burning hatred of generative grammar. <laughs> Yeah. And now we're ready to take the next big step. We're going to co-author a paper in the fall. <laughs> Thanks, LinguaDate. This service is wonderful. I was tired of the old prescriptivist bores you find at all the other dating sites and had nearly reconciled myself to purely isolating morphology when I tried LinguaDate. Suddenly, I found myself with dates who not only inflect duals, but for trials, pockles, and plurals. Prefixation one night, suffixation the next, and weekends filled with infixation. It was a linguist's dream. And don't get me started on the choice of subjects willing to make field recordings. I have never found my LinguaMate without LinguaDate. Whether you're looking for a relationship that's merely committative, purely instrumental, dative, or genitive, whether simulfactive, habitual, or durative, you'll find your special adjunct or complement at LinguaDate. Disclaimer, LinguaDate takes no responsibility for the suitability or otherwise the data produced. This service is not guaranteed to help you find your partner, best friend, forever small dog, idea, research subject, or data. Conlanging and computational linguistics only suitable for those over the age of 25 and must be under supervision of a doctor. Now for some linguistic fashion news. It appears that the ohm suffix is spreading like wildfire, the study of which has been called wildfire omics. Apparently, hard and soft sciences the world over are eagerly venturing forth to attach ohm to just about any theory or idea they can lay their hands on. Some, like UC Davis professor Jonathan Eisen, complain that academics have been too free with the ohm suffix and that they need to tone it down. Doing so is called antitonomics. So what do we say? Yay ohm or nay ohm, Trey? I am anti-ohm, which was actually a term that showed up in the article. Ohm. I think it's a sad day for science when researchers are more concerned with sounding labels than actually trying to learn stuff. Hmm. One of the guys in the article bragged about how he put his word incidental ohm into Wikipedia back in 2005 and it got deleted because <clears throat> there was no citation for it. So he wrote a paper where he used it in 2006. He actually said he snuck it back into Wikipedia and it got deleted again in 2007. But at some point between then and now it got put back into Wikipedia. However, as a result of this actual article and him bragging about it, it got deleted again from Wikipedia last month. <laughs> I love Wikipedia when they do stuff like this. Wow. And it's like the guy we talked about with the Burushowski. If you're worried about getting your results into Wikipedia, you're, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> but I think it's just part of the bigger issue of just trying to sound trendy. And I don't know if you can necessarily blame the scientists. Maybe trendy omics is easier to get funding and they're just being pragmatic in their use of language. But I don't like it. You know what, Trey? You're just showing your ignorance here by using trendy omics. The actual study is populomics. But anyway, one thing that I would like
like to point out, and I think that this is important, tying us back into linguistics, is that we have had the morphome since 1994. And I think that pretty much predates all of this ohm trend. So I really think that we linguists should be putting on our hipster genes and saying, yeah, we were doing it before it was cool. And not only that, now uh, I mean, linguists the uh, world over are dumping on morphomes, so we've already gotten rid of it. That's how cool we are. And we need to start something new. I say I'm. That's the next one. So we have the morphime. I'm is next. You got to be careful here because chemists have actually been up to this kind of thing for a long time. They have the international unit of physicists and chemists, although you never really hear much from the physicists in that. But they're legislated things like this kind of compound ends in a Y-N-E, and that kind of compound ends in an E-N-E, and there's another kind of compound that ends in an A-N-E. So you have ethane and ethene, and guess you might be able to have ethine too. I'm not sure. But by the time linguistics was doing this in an organized way, I mean, stratificational grammar did it in the 70s, I think, with on, om, and im. Oh, yep. The chemists had they been did. up to it for a while. Speaking Stratificationalists of, were way more scientific than most linguists. Mm. That's why it didn't work out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Talking about David's suggestion of im, and then and Bill mentioned im, because of memes, the im has also been spreading a little bit, certainly not as much as om. I think we need to try to get a an opposition between emic and etic mm-hmm. into the popular culture. So you have something that's memetic, or I think it's usually pronounced memetic, but memetic, um, yeah. what would be Except memetic? Except it's with an M-I. It's a different no, kind no, no, of no. thing. No, 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 no. Uh, M-E-M-E-T-I-C, memetic. It's related to memes. As a Southerner, I would like to object to that distinction <laughs> because I can't hear it. Wow. I don't pronounce it with one either, also being a Southerner. No, it, it's analogous to genetics. When Richard Dawkins came up with the original idea of the meme before it became a cutesy picture on the internet. I'd like to point out that I'm further south than all y'all. But you are not more southern. Uh, Perhaps not. But uh, I like this idea, though, because we could also have the next stage of morphology would be morphetics. That's Mm. the point. Mm, mm. What is the bit of that? So if you have morphetics, morphetics is the study of more... That's a little bit of a problem because phonetics studies phones. So morphetics would study morphs. Actually, uh, that's not too bad. Yeah, those would be allomorphs. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) In stratificational grammar, I think those were morphons. Really? Yep. More fun with the morphons. Yep. I don't remember that term. Somehow I've erased that from my mental map of stratificational grammar. That node has I, been deleted. Yeah, I think no, so. I, hey, I, I, I could be, be wrong. I doubt it. <laughs> I'm afraid that we may have left some of our listeners behind. I think it would be helpful here, to just returning to the ohm suffix here, I thought it might be a helpful exercise to go over some sample words and maybe I'll just put the words out there and you guys can tell our listeners what they would mean so they can learn to use this ohm suffix productively. So let's just illustrate by example. What's a gramome? Gramome. Gramome. I'm actually not, still not sure what a morphome is, even though I wrote an article describing what a morphome is. Okay, gramome. Would... Well, wait, maybe I'll give you a set, okay? Okay, okay, okay. So there's gramomes and grammaticalomes. And grammaticalizomes. Mm. I think that that set of three ought to get get us started. The ohm suffix that is spreading is kind of to make mass nouns that refer to the environment created by the sum total of all these. So it's like gene and 
genome. Okay, okay. That's slightly different. Yeah, the morpheme, according to the pop culture spreading use, it would be equivalent to the morphemosphere. Ah, okay, so then the gramome is the sum total of all grammars. That's actually what Chomsky is after, the gramome. Okay, he's trying to map the human gramome. Yeah, that's right. But Bill, did you just refer to scientists as pop culture? Yes. Do they do anything else? The ones, the <laughs> ones culture. that are using ohm in this way are. This, see, in a I sense, see. this connects to the point Trey was making about this getting kind of trendy. I think it's the people that really focus on Wikipedia and their terms are the ones that are computing their impact factors and signing up for clout accounts. <laughs> Now, I've already figured out the end point of this, which we can all go to immediately to save ourselves time, which is we will just found the Journal of Recursive Citation Studies. (laughs) We will all have an impact factor of infinity. Nice. And there we go. The mathematicians are going to jump in and point out that there are different levels of infinity. So is that an Aleph 1 infinity, an Aleph null infinity? And then the people are going to want to have different levels of infinity, and that's what tenure will be based on. Since when did any university administrator pay attention to what mathematicians told them? Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, a big anconium to those who appreciated this discussion. Up next, and I think that I am just going to read this, so here's, here's a quote for you. Biologists using tools for drawing evolutionary family trees say that they have solved a long-standing problem in archaeology, the origin of the Indo-European family of language. That quote pretty much says it all. It sure does. Yeah, some biologist has, yet again, elegantly and simply solved a problem plaguing linguists for decades. He says his computers determined that the entire Indo-European language family started in Anatolia in Turkey, famous for its non-IE languages, and then spread along with agriculture throughout Europe, and even in northwest China. He says that counter-arguments are hand-wavy. Thoughts, Bill? Well, you gotta kind of have some sympathy for Atkinson. I mean, he comes up with these simplifying maneuvers, which is a classic scientific approach. He almost gets there with things. So he comes out with the article on phonemic diversity and doesn't take that last step to figuring out phonotronic energy gradients, for example. But he's gotten part of the way there. In this case, his simplifying maneuver is to take the cognate sets and get rid of all the messy details that relate the cognates to each other. That kind of tough, chewy, wiry connection between the words that anchor them to historical contingency and all that sort of thing. (laughs) He cuts through all of that and says, look, here's an article that's got some cognates in it. He doesn't have to worry about, well, how many sound changes did this thing go through? How far back does that put it? Because, you know, historical linguists, they have written 18,000 pages about that one word, and that's a lot to go through. You know, he doesn't know about the squirrels or anything like that, so he just (laughs) ignores that. He treats the cognates as if they're alleles or or however in a gene. So you have some polymorphism at this site, you know, among the languages. So let's go use the same software on this. Now, what he's not doing, which would allow an even more sort of earth-shattering discovery, is to take it to the next logical step, which is instead of looking at connections among cognates by extracting them from linguistics articles, why not just look for connections between words in historical linguistics articles? (laughs) So 
<laughs> For example, just to, to ground this a bit, if you look at the history of the Indo-European studies, one of the big discussions is about the Germanic language family because of this set of sound shifts that we call Grimm's Law and Werner's Law, right? So the consonants kind of play musical chairs. You end up with fricatives in a lot of places where Indo-European apparently had stops, etc. Some of this is still going on in like the first 500 years of the common era, you know, etc. Might have started earlier. I mean, there's arguments about this. Now, using this simplification step, we can say, all right, what was going on here? The word fricativization shows up a good bit. Some of this is going on from like zero to 500 common era, etc. Well, where else does this show up? Discussions of Chinese... <laughs> okay, that's interesting. We'll look over here. There's a bunch of recent patients on DNA saying that Northern Europeans are slightly Asian shifted relative to Southern Europeans. Okay, if you, if you run the stats on them with comparison populations in Sardinia, for example, and African populations and East Asian populations, you find out that the Northern Europeans have bits of genetic material that appear Asian shifted. Well, here's your answer, okay? It's obviously Chinese influence on Germanic. It makes perfect sense. I mean, Tokarians went galloping over next to China. They probably sent an expeditionary force the other direction. It's like, what, what is going on here? They're going to be more bizarre, dairy-eating weirdos up on our border. And so, therefore, we get an odd stratum effect that's fricativizing. It's, it's, it's obviously Sino-Germanic contact. Okay, so he's at the doorstep of this breakthrough, but he's not taking his simplifying procedures to their logical conclusions. Wow. That was actually only one of the things that I think that this article posited. The other one, which perhaps I think is more immediately troubling, is that linguistics is apparently a subdiscipline of archaeology. Were we aware of this? Archaeologists have always known that. I mean, yeah, it's interesting <laughs> that that first sentence that you read to us, biologists using tools developed for drawing evolutionary family trees say they solved a long-standing problem in archaeology, right. the origin of the Indo-European family of languages. I mean, this is three, shall we say, at utterly unrelated fields. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you can make the argument that linguistics and archaeology are really, you know, under the same umbrella because archaeology is just anthropology in the past. And you can make the argument that linguistics is just anthropology of language. So, yeah, sure. It's all the same thing. Oh, okay. I, see. I was actually thinking something different, that he solved this problem for archaeology, but not for linguistics. So, <laughs> so, now, so now archaeologists have the origin of IE family of languages, but uh, we still need ours. So I guess we still have to go to work. I suppose then the most relevant question that occurs to one now is, what does this mean for the status of Bruchowski? That it's an Anatolian language, of course. Oh, okay, so that it's it actually is just Turkish. Can we claim Turkish as an IE language? I think that would be wonderful myself. No, I I think Turkish Atolian. Ah, oh. I mean they came from outside that area, so it's the languages that originally started out in that part of Western Asia are Anatolian. They're they're those that are not Atolian. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I got that. This, this, of course, means that Turks are originally from Atoll. Or they're from an atoll oh, in the Pacific. Yeah. So, wait a minute. Probably in the Pacific. This actually bespeaks some sort of an Austronesian influence on IE. 
No, on Turkish. Oh, right, right. Excuse me. Yeah. So Turkish. Didn't we decide we we're going to make that an IE language too? Yeah. Uh, no, that, no. Was, uh, that was proposed. Oh, okay. So, so that's just. David a, and I did. Yeah. That's, so that's out of balance. Well, anyway, the Jones Petersonian side of speculative linguistics holds that there is an important connection between Turkish and the other IE languages, namely that they are one and the same. Whereas the Slater Sprulian side of the divide claims that while it's obvious that Austronesian had a direct influence on the Turkic languages, there's still no connection between the Turkic languages and the IE languages. Is this correct? Well, there's a third camp, too, because Kulyu's important work years ago on, I think it was, I know, Franco-Indonesian. Yes. Yeah. He really did pioneer that area. But the recent work, what it's going to do is call into question the Indonesian side of that. Obviously not the Sino-Franco part, because that's just obvious, you know, that's connected. <laughs> Frankish was an language, so that's where the connection comes in, right? One of the things I've seen is when people are counter-criticizing the fact that Atkinson and his crew are at it again here trying to do linguistics, is something that can be summed up as interdisciplinary work is the greatest thing ever these days, and it's perfectly wonderful and all that. People come back and say, you know, inter- interdisciplinary work is the best thing ever. But in this case, it's more like a linguist coming in and classifying animals based on the similarity of the Latin roots of their species and genus names. And, you know, just ignoring all the accumulated knowledge in the field so you can apply your favorite hammer to a given problem isn't interdisciplinary. It's douchebaggery. Wait, can we do that? Uh, I think... (laughs) <laughs> well, well, I think there's a particular kind of terminological distinction that might be useful here. There's interdisciplinary, which involves combining two fields. And there's extradisciplinarity, where you get out of your field and haven't gone in anybody else's yet. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The criticisms of Atkinson's work are basically that it's extradisciplinary, not interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to admit, I don't understand the math behind it. I also have to admit... It's fun to poke fun at it. Uh, I do know he's ignoring a titanic amount of research on the etymologies and just referring to it as hand-waving, Yeah, which does not strike me as a particularly professional way to address research in another field. Having said that, again, I don't understand the math behind it. I didn't really dig into the math, but the origin of the math is it's a model, a computational model for the spread of viruses based on virus mutation rates and the way that viruses spread geographically. And certainly at a high-level metaphorical level, sure, you can see the, the analogy there between the spread of languages and stuff. But when you start really getting down to the details, I don't see any reason to think that any mathematical model that is well-justified for modeling the spread of viruses necessarily applies without comment to the spread of language. Mm, right. Yeah. Those things are just not comparable to me. I, I know more than the average person about both language and genetics, though I'm not a super expert in anything. <laughs> but I know just enough to be dangerous. But it's clear that those are really different things. And again, you know, like I said, at a metaphorical level, sure, it's the same kind of thing. But at, at a detailed level, the, the method of transmission, the speed of change, the motivating factors of change, whether it's genetic mutations or a language change, it's just... It's really different. So I don't think you need to understand the math. You just understand that those those two things do not seem comparable. So you should poke fun at it all you want. Okay. Hooray! <laughs> well, it always brings a smile to my heart and to Mr. Atkinson, a fine teshikir ederim, my fellow IE speaker. We have some more LMD coming up, but first a word from our sponsor. Want to learn all 6,000 languages, but find you never have the time? Then why not learn the following expression? I am a linguist. Répétez, s'il vous plaît. I am a linguist. 
and many of your acquaintances will be wowed by their own assumptions that you speak all the languages of the world. This public service announcement is brought to you by the Speculative Grammarian Council of Lonely Linguists. Linguists need love, too. And we're back. Once again, we're going to take a look at some tough linguistics exam questions and give you all the answers. Set your iPods to record and prepare to exit the building. To get us into it, here's Keith Slater. Keith, take it away. Okay, once again, it's time to help out our pitiable grad student listeners, especially those who are preparing to take their comprehensive exams this semester. Students, we feel your pain, and we're here to give you the drugs you need. That's right. It's time for more sample comprehensive exam questions, and more importantly, sample comprehensive exam answers. Come to think of it, you don't necessarily have to use the sample answers with their corresponding sample questions. Mm. We're guessing that most of these answers would work for just about any question, especially at the MA level. (laughs) So grab your notebooks and start writing as we share some answers that will ensure that you pass your comprehensive exam with flying colors. Okay, let's start with a phonology question today. We all love phonology most. It's the toughest for a lot of us in linguistics. Well, let's just start with the easy one, okay? The advanced tongue root feature is associated with phonemic nasalization of mid-vowels in some languages, but the nature of the association varies. In some of these languages, the plus ATR mid-vowels are always nasalized, and in others, they're never nasalized. Why do you think this kind of bifurcated pattern exists? Mention orthophonemes if possible. Who would like to go first? Bill. Oh, no, it's phonology. Okay, here's how I would attack that. You've got a bifurcated pattern. You've got a feature. The fun thing about features is that any positive feature can be viewed as the absence of a different negative feature. So I will take plus ATR, and I'll say the responding feature that's minus RTR. With me so far? (laughs) Now that I've got both of these... So far, this is a C minus. Yeah, now that I've got these, I can say that plus ATR is associated with plus nasalization. Minus RTR is associated with minus nasalization. And those two are in competition. And what looks like the bifurcated pattern is one of them winning in one language and the other one winning in another. I'm sure Corey Wovich would agree with me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, that's a possible answer. Anyone else want to take a crack at this? Well, here's what I think. Obviously, you know, the advanced tongue root feature means that the further you stick your tongue out, the harder it is to close the velum, meaning that it's more likely for a vowel to be nasal if your tongue root is advanced for a plus ATR vowel like A and O. All right, so... That's half of the answer right there. Now that we know it's difficult, then certain languages will try to be cool, right? Because they want to try to do that thing that's more difficult. So then they make it so that the vowels, which should naturally be nasalized, they're going to try to denasalize them on purpose to impress their neighboring languages. And so then their plus ATR vowels will be strictly non-nasal. Well, now that's a good answer, but let me point out that that's a phonetics answer. So you might oh. not get away with that on the, on the actual test. But Trey, can you give us another take on this? Um, well, if... Like both of the other two guys, you don't actually have a good answer. (laughs) But you also recognize it, as I do, that I don't have a good answer. You can take a different approach, which is to get defensive and indignant and take a semi-postmodern lit crit, semi-family values stance and announce that linguistics department is not the place to be discussing these kind of disgusting fetishes. You just keep your advanced tongue root to yourself. I don't want to hear about it. 
<laughs> Retract. Well, now that might go over well with some committee members. Nobody seems to have mentioned archiphonemes, and I would like to point out, students, that no one cited any famous studies by linguists or mentioned any linguists' names in passing. That would probably have helped. But, I um, mentioned Kuriwovich. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're right. You did. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's move on to morphology, having dealt with phonology, shall we? Okay. <laughs> um, today's morphology question has to do with case marking, and here's the question. While the nominative-accusative alignment is fairly consistent in its shape across the world's languages, ergative-absolutive alignment is not. In fact, it seems that just about every so-called ergative language has some different case-marking facts. In fact, about the only thing that so-called ergative languages have in common is that they have no accusative category. Why do you think this is so? I think I'd better be the first one to answer that. What I would do is, first of all, point out that a language like Georgian does have an accusative case in certain screeves, and then it has a, you know, ergative in other screeves. So that fact by itself totally devalues and proves false the question. And so then, you know, it's obvious that the question was just a trick question. I can trot out my one fact that I have, you know, in, in my repertoire and say, you know, therefore, it turns out that languages are far more diverse than linguists in the past have been willing to admit. And to that, I would like to cite the work of William Laboff, uh, Noam Chomsky, and Leonard Bloomfield, and also uh, Panini. <laughs> Good now, that is an excellent answer. I'm not sure we need to hear any other samples, but does anyone else want to put in their two cents? If you didn't have command of the facts that David has there, you could build on his earlier answer to the phonology question about personifying the languages there and viewing them from that point of view. So I think this is etymologically sound, the idea of an ergative language, because it comes from the, the Greek root ergon, which means work. And basically, these are the languages that work really hard to stand out from the crowd by doing their own thing. And then you, the person asking the question, as a speaker of an accusative language, are coming along and accusing them of failing to do so perfectly while you just continue to go along with the crowd. And you sheeple disgust me. I would take a different approach on this. The fact that all of your ergative languages seem to be doing very different things is simply telling you that you should not be trying to slap one label on all of these. I'm taking a similar attack to David's, but I'm saying, look, linguists started using this label ergative, started applying it to different languages, and then convinced themselves that since they're using the same label, it's the same thing. Mm. In fact, every single single case in every single language is different, and each one should have its own name. Precisely. <laughs> it's precisely. That was good. If you're taking this exam at some place like Rice or Santa Barbara, you would need to mention that ergativity is a continuum. <laughs> any language with any kind of ergative phenomenon is going to fall somewhere along that continuum, and then you can avoid the original question entirely. I like because it. Because you've, you've hit yeah. on the proper buzzword. <laughs> And you uh, that might work have in San to Diego, too. <laughs> yeah, and you'd have to mention Helmslip. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, I think we've pretty much handled that one. Shall we move on? Excellent. Okay, well, let's do a question from language acquisition, which is a field that is too little noticed by linguists today. Mm. This is a softball one. What is the critical period hypothesis? Do you believe that it describes something that is a fact about language or that it is simply an epiphenomenon? I would say that the critical period is, in fact, not a simple epiphenomenon. It's actually an epi-epiphenomenon. 
That is, uh-huh. it's not an epiphenomenal fact about language acquisition, but rather an epiphenomenal fact about the study of language acquisition. Mm. And I would have room in this essay to expound upon my thesis, but because I've run out of room due to the repeated use of forms of the word epiphenomenon, I will not. <laughs> okay, that would work at the bottom of the page. For an oral exam, you might have trouble there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it turns out that there are lots of competing theories about the critical period. Some claim that there is a critical period, others that there's not a critical period. What I would like to do today is say that both camps have some good ideas, and that if we can just gather everybody together under one big tent, we can really make some forward progress and understand a little bit more about what we like to call language acquisition. Thank you very much. Are you providing insulin to the people grading this? Do <laughs> <laughs> you want to say something, or have we exhausted the I would. I would fill up at least four pages in an attempt at a careful discussion of the difference between epiphenomenal and contingent. Mm. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> you want to give us a summary of that? or uh... No, because well, I'd have to make it up as I was writing it. <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's move on then. Although I noticed that no one mentioned the name Crashin, but uh, we'll give you a pass on that. <laughs> well, let's move on to sociolinguistics. This will be our last question for the day. So it's what's going to make or break your exam here. Sociolinguistics is a field that's too little noticed by linguists. Well, not too little. It's not really little enough noticed by linguists. But anyway, you might get a question on your exam anyhow. So here's one to give you a little practice. Sociolinguists claim that linguistic features can be so-called markers, which indicate something entirely non-linguistic. How would you evaluate this claim? Hmm. Well, I guess where I would have to start is that basically any terms that I could use in my answer would mark me as a linguistics graduate student. And so that says something crucial about the type of analysis that I could provide, the type of answer that I could give to the question. Really, any answer that I would provide would say more about me, the one providing the answer, than it would about the question itself. And so at that point, it just kind of becomes ridiculous. And so it's like, why would I even answer? Instead, why isn't the professor just coming to me and say, you know what? I find you interesting. Let's go out and have a cup of coffee. On the fourth floor. (laughs) (laughs) Trey, it sounds like you might have something to add. (laughs) I do not. Okay. That was it. (laughs) That was it. Well, you certainly would like to mention the fourth floor in your answer to this question, or the fourth floor, depending on your committee members. (laughs) Bill? What do you have to say about this? I would probably first start out by trying to make some noise about, by indicate, do you mean correlate with, or do you mean actually point to kind of an indexical way? You're either going to cite Goldvarb, or you're going to become an anthropological linguist. I'm going to do something much, much worse. I'm going to mention purse. (laughs) Okay. I'm afraid you're going to lose your questioners at that point, but go ahead. (laughs) But that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Don't feel right marking it down <laughs> because if you start actually reading purse who the hell knows what he meant there <laughs> so this is some sociolinguistic meta jujitsu you've got going here yeah well Excellent. actually you know the downside of it is there are people who know what purse meant there but they tend to be in philosophy departments and they're not reading your answers 
Okay. I just know they exist, and I don't want to argue with them. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that's all the questions we're going to do today. That should be enough to get you through your comprehensive exams, students, unless you have a particularly sadistic committee chair. So we'll stop there for this time. Feel free to use these answers. Memorize them. Use them confidently. And remember, if you heard it on language made difficult, you can be pretty sure your professor didn't. Good luck. <laughs> Oh, excellent. Well, thank you so much, Keith. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when I report on my upcoming trip to Specgram's labor camp on the Russian island of Severnaya Zemlya. Can't wait. Sounds invigorating. Thanks for listening. Or, or as Emmanuel Swedenborg would put it, <laughs> We're going to now go do terrible things to some poor science writer. It's <laughs> uh, always so much fun. In fact, I bet you could actually write an algorithm that could produce new SpecRam podcasts from old SpecRam podcasts. In fact, I could. <laughs> they must have nothing else to do in biology but to solve all our problems. I mean, it's just wonderful. I do not have the questions. And you'll be as prepared as I am. Let's go. There is motivated snarky, and then there's you know, snarky just because it's fun to snark. Well, uh, nothing says loving more like lies, damn lies, and linguistics. Right. I think I misspoke there, but you know what? I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep it. Bake us a batch of melty, chewy factitiousness, Trey. I apparently wrote that. <laughs> I think uh, maybe you got hold of a few of those magic mushrooms from last time. <laughs> and thus language was born. One of the... <laughs> I don't know where, I don't know how to follow that, but, um, (laughs) and we're back. Uh, just a second. It's all right. Then this time for real. And we're back. Ooh, uh, just a second. Um, sometimes, sometimes I don't write all the words that I intend to. I just skip Uh, over. Okay. This time, this time for super real precisely. And we're back.